We're going to be in the book of Titus this morning, Titus chapter 2. Again, thanks to our music team for the thoughtful leading of our hearts and thoughts to praise the Lord together. Book of Titus chapter 2. The Christian life looks very different from the world and the people around you. It's possible that sometimes if you're Christian and you're trying to live the way that God's word guides us to, that you feel deprived or at least disadvantaged. I'm thinking a lot especially about young men, young women who are making choices right now about the direction that you will take in life. This applies to everybody, whatever stage of life we're in, but uh, you are figuring out what you value and the kind of person that you will be and how you will invest your energy and your ability. And I think that we are all looking not only for a what, what do I do? What do I do in life? How do I live my life? But we are also looking for a why. And we're looking together at this little letter from Paul to Titus, and we've learned that it calls us to a life that is different, that is distinct, and we might even say unusual, and at times costly. And uh, Paul has used words like sober, temperate, respectable, chaste, submissive, having integrity and being trustworthy. We might have pictures in our minds of The old pilgrims dressed in black, (laughs) thinking, well, that doesn't look like very much fun. And especially when we see the world around us and what seems to be a fun-filled or even sometimes a meaningful life. It sounds very austere and, and somber. The truth is, following Jesus is unusual. You will live life in a way that is different and It involves self-denial, and it will cost you. But I think if you ask any Christian in this room that's lived for years, much or most of a lifetime as a follower of Christ, they would say, oh, there is so much joy. There is true purpose. There is fulfillment in that life. The question, though, is why? So what what motivates us to to live this way? What motivates us to gauge our lives and, and to guide our lives by this old book, this ancient document called the Bible? And what compels us to declare our loyalty to the Jewish Messiah who lived in a different age on the other side of the world? And what we're going to look at today in the book of Titus chapter 2, I'm calling, Why Should I? And Paul anticipated the questions and provided an answer to these questions, the question of why, here in the book of Titus. So let me read for us Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And when you see at the beginning of verse 11, the word for, F-O-R, he's introducing now the reason for everything he's been saying. So Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, 
looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So, so why should you and I say no to appetites and passions and temptations and pressures and forces around us? And why should we choose to follow the Bible? And why should we choose to live in a way that points people to God? And the answer is found in a word, a word that we've been highlighting here this morning there in verse 11. It's the word grace, the word grace, and specifically the grace of God, the grace that that flows from God. As we begin thinking about this concept of why, we want to understand grace, right? It's one of those terms that may be familiar to us, and we sort of automatically assume we understand, but can we just take a minute and and meditate on it and make sure that we do fathom it? What is grace? Uh, Grace, I think, if you could sum up true Christianity in a word, and what Christianity is about, it would be this word. It would be grace. Grace describes what God is like. Grace describes how God interacts with, with his people, with those he has created. Do you remember when Moses said, Lord, I want to see your glory. In other words, I want to see you for who you are. And God said, I'll give you a glimpse of my glory. And as God passed by Moses, when Moses was hiding behind that that huge boulder, God spoke. He not only only demonstrated his glory, but he spoke of his glory. And he he declared who he is, and in all of the, the ways that he described himself, he said, as, as, as Exodus chapter 34 describes for us, he says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. So God himself said, This is who I am. I am a gracious God. Grace is one of the main characteristics of Jesus. You remember when John described Jesus. In John chapter 1, he said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And then what did he say about Jesus? He is full of grace and truth. So Jesus Christ Himself, in, in His very nature, was full of this quality, of this attribute of grace. Grace is the only means by which any of us, anyone, can be in a right relationship with God. It's only by grace. So it must be important. Paul said, for by grace you are saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of yourselves, not of works, lest anybody should boast. It's all through grace. We can't work. We can't merit. We cannot earn our way into God's favor. It has to be supplied and provided to us by this quality of grace. Grace is the source of our ability to grow and overcome sin and and to serve God. And there there are many, many verses we could point to in the Bible that tell us this, but I, I think of Paul's encouragement to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 where he said, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is yours in Christ Jesus. So Timothy needed to receive grace from God so that he would be strong enough to live his life for God and to serve God. 
in, in ministry. So, so grace is the source of our ability to live and grow and serve God and overcome sin. You know what? Look with me at Acts chapter 2 for just a minute. We're going to take a few side trips this morning. Because I want you to see that, that grace is also a mark of a church that is healthy and growing. That's something you're interested in, right? Being a church that is healthy and growing. Look at how the narrative in the book of Acts describes the Christians who gathered at the very beginning of what we would call the, the church, the birth of the church. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 47. So in the book of Acts chapter 2, it describes what these people did and how they met and worshipped and prayed and praised God. And, and verse 47 says, Acts 2, 47, they were praising God and they were having favor with all the people. And that word favor in the translation I'm reading is the Greek word charis, which is the word grace. The word grace. Having grace with all the people. So, so these believers, as they gathered, were characterized by, and, and there was an observation of the people around them of something called grace. Then look at Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. So that's the church in Jerusalem. Then look at how the church is described as the people spread out from there. And they were in the city called Antioch, Acts chapter 11. Uh, verse 19 tells them them being scattered. They preached the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Look at Acts eleven twenty-two. News of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch when he came and had seen the grace of God. So yes, he saw the evidence of God's grace in people being saved, but I think it was also observable in the relationships and the lives and the way these people treated each other. And he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose of heart that they should continue with the Lord. And down in, in verse 26, it tells us that these were first called Christians in Antioch. So here you see, right, the church now living and breathing and, and just emanating grace, this quality of grace. And so grace is a mark of a church that is healthy and growing. What is grace? And I know we're not into the, the points or the notes yet. You're, some of you are looking at the screen wondering when the points are going to pop up. They're coming. <laughs> so hang on. This is all introduction. What is grace? Essentially, it is favor. It is favor. Grace is favor. A few other words that come to mind. If you were to look up the word grace, you would see words like this. Kindness. Kindness. So, so if God is gracious, that means that he shows us kindness. If, if, we, if we emulate the grace of God in, in our lives, in our church, we would say that we, we display kindness. We show kindness to people. Another word is approval. Approval. If someone is gracious, they're showing approval. God gives us his approval. Another word is preference. Preference. And we would say that certainly God has given us special preference. And then the word support. So kindness, approval, preference, and support. And certainly we would say that God is gracious and he provides support. He helps us. Now, now could I do that for one of you? Could I be kind and, and communicate to you that I approve of you? 
and maybe I prefer you in some way, I do something special for you, and maybe I come along and give a word of encouragement, I support you somehow, or I help you with some task, yes, I can do that, and we can do that for each other. But here's the difference between what we do for each other and the, and the grace that God shows is that we deserve the opposite from God. We deserve the exact opposite from God. In fact, instead, instead of God's kindness, we deserve his anger. We do. His wrath. Instead of God's approval, we deserve his condemnation because of our sin. Instead of God's preference, we deserve to be rejected. Instead of God's support, we deserve to be separated from him now and have no, no ability to communicate with him or ask for his help to be separated from him now and forever. What makes God's grace unique is that we don't deserve it. In fact, we deserve to be out of God's favor so, so an important element of God's grace, a unique aspect of God's grace, is that he has made a way for us to be in his favor, to receive his kindness, to be approved by him, to, to be preferred by him, to be supported by him. So how can we go from being out of God's favor to being in God's favor and in his grace? Another little side trip. Go with me to Acts, excuse me, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I love these verses in Romans. And if you're familiar with the book of Romans, Paul has been, has been laying out theological points of why we need a Savior, how we can be saved. And look at what he says in Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Romans 5 verse 1. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith. So justified means made righteous by God. So we are unrighteous, but we are given the righteousness of Christ, and we receive that by faith, by trusting in Jesus as Savior. Now look at the amazing benefits. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So now we're at peace. Now we have God's approval. Now we are restored to him. Now we have fellowship with him and access to him, through whom also he says in verse 2, we have access by faith. And now look at how Paul describes this new realm of existence into this grace in which we stand. Remember, grace is God's favor. It's his kindness. It's his approval. It's his preference. It's his support. We were not in the realm of grace. We did not have a standing in grace, but through faith in Christ, receiving his righteousness, we now have access to God. We have peace with God. And he says, we stand in this grace. And the idea of standing is to be in a fixed and permanent position. Your feet are planted. They are anchored. You're not going anywhere. That's the idea. This is a permanent status we now have with God. We are in the realm of grace. We're in his favor. So when you become a Christian, you are, you are changed from being in the realm of out of God's favor, and all that that includes to being in the realm of God's favor, and all that goes with that. What a blessing. What a blessing that is. That's an understatement, isn't it? So you are in the realm of grace as a Christian. Now let's go back to Titus chapter 2 and talk about the answer to the question why. Now that we understand grace a little bit better, why do we live this way? Why do we deny certain things in our lives? Why do we embrace other pursuits and actions and practices in our lives? Why are we guided by the Bible? Why do we follow Jesus Christ? Why do we live in a way that's distinct and unusual? 
Well, first of all, because grace has rescued you and set you free. Grace has rescued us and set us free. Notice he says in verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Salvation, we would say saved. To be saved means to be rescued, doesn't it? It's like somebody who is in trouble and their life is in danger and someone comes along and performs a rescue. That is what salvation is. We are rescued from separation from God, condemnation for our sins, and eternal separation in a place of torment, and the, the control of sin in our lives, and the bondage to sin we experience. He rescues us from that and saves us by his grace. He tells us how he does that in verse 14. Gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every, every lawless deed. The word redeem means to pay a price. So we know what the price was, right? He gave his life. A, a prisoner of war could be, could be redeemed in this way. A slave could be redeemed. A criminal could be redeemed for a price. So this word redeemed was familiar to these people. And, and Paul was saying, this is what Jesus did for you. You were captive. You were condemned. And Jesus paid the price. And the price, of course, was his life. When he gave his life, when he died on the cross in our place and for our sins. A big part of God's grace is that he has made it available to us. Notice he says, this salvation has appeared to all men. Now this is like the referring to when Jesus was born, when he came into this world. So, so this salvation personified in Jesus Christ appeared to all of us. The idea of this word appeared might uh, go with even something uh, sort of like last night. I don't know where you were, but, but it was thundering and lightning and storming during the night. And it uh, didn't happen this morning, but some mornings after a stormy night, you wake up and there's this golden glow coming in the windows and you hear the birds singing and the, the sky is blue, right? There's a clear morning as the sun rises after a stormy night. That's the idea of this word appeared. Salvation appeared the day dawned, as Scripture calls Jesus, the day star has, has arisen. He appeared historically to the world, but if you're a Christian, he also has appeared personally to you. God came to you, didn't he? He made himself known to you. He invited you to believe the gospel and to trust his son. And that's an amazing thing to think about and to thank God for, isn't it? That he made himself known to you in a personal way. And he did so to save you and to change you. Let's go back to Romans 5 for a minute. Later on in this chapter, near the end of Romans chapter 5, Paul says this in verse 20, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at what he says in chapter 6. So what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that this grace just might continue to abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it. And then glance at the end of verse 4. Even so, he says, we should walk in newness of life. 
What this is telling you and me is that when grace appeared in our lives, when God saved us, he did so with this free favor that he gives to us through Jesus Christ, but he saved us not to leave us in that condition. Not only did he save us from the condemnation of our sins, but he also saved us from being controlled by our sin. He says, no, listen, sin's not going to reign anymore in your life. In fact, when he says that they should walk in newness of life, that's not a should of obligation. That, that is a should of actuality. This is what's going to happen. They shall walk in newness of life. You're going to be a different person is what it means if grace has come into your life. So, so he, grace has rescued you and set you free, again, not only from the condemnation of sin, but from the control of sin. Grace is not just a one-time experience, but it becomes a controlling influence in your life. So grace rescues you and sets you free, and it places you in this new realm. And then Paul goes on to tell us that grace educates us. Grace educates us. And he says this in, in verse 12. This, this grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it teaches us, verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So another answer to the question of why do we live this way? Why do we not live that way? Why do we live this way? It's because grace educates you in how to live. If you're familiar with the word pe- pedagogy, that's a word that refers to teaching, to education. The Greek word translated here, teaching, is the Greek word paiduo, ped. You hear that in there. And it is this idea of, of instructing, but it also emphasizes more than just an information transfer. It's not just a person standing there and talking, but it also includes a, a system a structure of learning. We might use the word discipline or a regimented scenario. So it's more than just verbiage. There's more to it than that. So grace, grace teaches us, it educates us in the sense that it not only informs us, but also it shapes us, we might say. Grace shapes us and the kind of person that we are. It shapes not only our minds, but also it shapes our lives. So, so when you become a Christian, it means that you do so not so that you can presume on the grace of God and live any way that you want. But now this new realm of existence that you are in shapes how you live and begins a process of growth. Remember what Peter said, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now you're in this, this greenhouse of the grace of God where your life can begin to flourish and thrive and be healthy and strong and grow. And that's a lifelong process. And he tells us what to do in in verse 12. It's going to mean saying no to some things, isn't it? It's going to to mean saying, no, I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to embrace. I'm not going to introduce those influences into my mind. I'm not going to follow those practices. Worldly lusts. We all have passions. We have appetites. And they are teased by the world around us. They're waved under our nose. Here, take some of this. It's all out there. It's so easy for us to access it. We're going to have to say no to some of those things. So the the Christian life, the life of grace, does involve some denial, self-denial, as well as denying 
the appeals to indulge in a sinful way. But there's a positive side. We should live. Here's this word soberly. We've seen it numerous times already in this passage. It's the idea of of using good judgment, not just following your whims or impulses or the forces around you and and conforming to that. But, But you make wise choices. Righteously means conforming to God's will. Godly means that, that you love God. And you have a heart, a desire to, to honor him with how you live. And so you make choices toward, in a positive way, being this kind of person. So grace shapes how we live. And I think Paul is also referring back to all of these qualities, especially in chapter 2, that he has been raising and talking to older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and pastors, Titus, and saying, here's how you need to live. This is the kind of person you need to be. So I think when, when he talks about this denying and, and pursuing or embracing living in these ways, he's referring to these qualities he's been talking about there. So, so grace educates us. It shapes how we, how we think and and guides how we live. And that means that being a Christian is not just living by rules. Some people view it that way. Well, if I follow these rules and I, and I adhere to these standards and I conform to these expectations, then I'm living the Christian life. No. You can, you can put on a good show. You can conform outwardly. Um, you can receive lots of commendations for being a good Christian boy or a good Christian girl, and yet not be pursuing godliness in grace, the quality, the attribute, the environment, the experience of grace, of God's goodness and God's favor, and grace being the motivating reason for what you do, the why for what you do. We live not just to please others, not just to be approved, not just to conform to a standard, not to fulfill expectations, not because it's what others in the Christian group around us are doing, not even because it's the culture we grew up in in a home, but because we ourselves are individually motivated by grace. We have an appreciation, an understanding, and a gratitude for the grace of God. And we say, you know what? God has been so good to me, and I want his grace to shape how I live as I desire to honor him. It means that we don't live by impulse or ambition. And we have lots of impulses, things we feel like doing. We have ambitions, objectives we want to achieve, dreams we want to pursue, and and accomplishments that we want to, to fulfill. But those don't drive us primarily as believers, do they? We can have godly dreams and goals and pursuits that flow from grace, and those can guide our lives. And it means that when we have choices to make, we ask ourselves, what is grace teaching me to do? What is God's grace in my life educating me to do in this situation? How is God's grace guiding the choice that I make? And you weigh the impact that that the grace of God has had in your life. And sometimes you might even be looking at a a choice that would lead to a path away from God and, and maybe even some destruction that lies at the end of that, a disaster that may come because of that. And you say, you know what? I, I weigh the positive impact God's grace has had on my life and should continue to have in my life with this path, this choice, and the experience and the outcome. And I say, you know what? I'm going with grace. 
I'm going to live by, live by grace. So grace becomes your teacher. One of the ways that grace teaches us is that it orients us and really establishes our destiny and the way that we live in view of that destiny. So we might say that grace orients your future. And that's what we see in verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking means looking forward to with expectation, like you look forward to a special day. Maybe it's graduation day, or it's your birthday, or you look forward to a special event, a wedding, a trip, going fishing, whatever it might be that, that you anticipate and, and, and you think about ahead and plan, make plans around that event. That's the idea of this word looking. Your mind goes to it frequently. You make plans for it and you orient your life toward that occasion. What occasion? What event? What, what future event does he say that we are to be orienting our life toward? Well, he, he gives this grand description here, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. He's already mentioned Jesus appearing once, hasn't he? Back in verse 11. It has appeared, probably referring to when Jesus came the first time. So what's this referring to? It's referring to when Jesus comes again. We call it the return of Christ. It is considered the glorious appearing. Often as as Christians who, who know that Jesus Christ is coming back to rapture believers, to take Christians out, many of us believe before three and a half years of a terrible time on the earth, and in three and a half years of the absolute worst time on this earth, the tribulation and the great tribulation. So, so Jesus will come in the sky to take Christians out. Do you really believe that's going to happen? Okay, all right. So Jesus rose from the dead. We amen that, right? Jesus is coming back, and these are supernatural, miraculous things that are outside of our scope of, of, of experience and understanding, but... We're, we're talking about the scriptures and what they tell us. And so Jesus is coming back. But, but this is not probably referring to that. When the Bible talks about the glorious appearing of Christ, this is after those seven awful, awful years on this earth when Jesus returns in glory with the armies of heaven and all the saints who have gone to glory and been raptured out before that and appear the nations of the world have formed an alliance against God. They are intending to take on God. And Jesus shows up. He doesn't need an army, but believers are with him and his force of angels. And he speaks, and it's done, right? It's done. That's his glorious appearing, and that's probably what Paul is identifying here. Jesus' return that is the event that will be the end of the world as we know it and will begin Jesus' reign and our eternity with him. And Paul here calls it our hope. It is our anticipation. It is our expectation. That's what we look forward to. 
And we're surrounded by the glitz and the glamour of the world and the immediate experiences and the pleasurable experiences. And God has some of those here for us to enjoy, right? But there is something ahead that is truly our hope. And he calls it our blessed hope. So there's blessing attached to it. And, and the glorious appearing. I love how one writer, I don't remember who it was, I just have it in the margin of my Bible here, that, that this appearing of Christ is blessing for us and glory for him. It's blessing for us and glory for him. And so that just reminds us that this world isn't all there is. And we live for something in the future, something eternal, something that lasts, something that is blessed. There's blessing and something that is glorious. So, some ways to allow God's grace to affect how we live as you make choices about the future, wherever you are in life, as a young man, young woman, middle age, later in life, we all have something ahead of us, right? As we make choices about our future, make those choices in a way that reflects your view of what's eternal, what really matters, what really lasts, what counts for eternity, the choices you make, the ways you invest your energy, the, the vocation you choose, the way that you bring up your family, the way that you spend and invest your time, your energy, your finances, the relationships you have with people. Sure, the fun you have and the, the, the enjoyments that, that this life has for us, but all in view of something eternal. If you are anxious about the future, any, any of us, any of us at any age, when you're anxious about the future, remember that it will all come together, it will all be resolved It'll be completed, it'll be consummated, it'll be finished, it'll all be good, it'll all be set right. And if you are in Christ, if you are in grace, you are secure. He reigns and he will reign. And you and I will be part of that. And all these little petty problems in this life are just going to go away. They're going to vanish. We won't even think about them anymore. And we will enjoy being with Jesus and reigning with Christ forever. So we don't have to be anxious. When it seems the wicked are prospering, and they do, the writer of Psalm 73 talks about this. I won't go there today, but you may want to read Psalm 73 when you think about the fact that it seems that whether it's in politics or, or business or crime or just anything going on in this world, it's like, how do they get away with that? And the wicked do prosper, in a sense, in this, in this life, in this world. But the writer of Psalm 73 said, Then I understood their end. Then I understood their end, the outcome of that life. And it is not good. And then he declared, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You can have a pile of money. You can be in a position of power. You can indulge in every pleasurable whim you can think of. But you don't have God. But when you're a believer, you're in grace. God is my portion he is my possession, not in the sense that I own him and have authority over him, but, it, but he does belong to me. God is mine forever. Psalm seventy three twenty six. What a precious truth. And I would say to those, and I know this is personal for some of us here today, but I think it's good to, to encourage you. When we think about the fact that grace orients us toward the future, it gives us comfort when someone we love has died in Christ, 
has reached the end of their life on this earth. And there's so many beautiful descriptions in the word of God of the home that we have in glory. That we will enjoy that home in glory. And referring to the rapture, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says that, that when Christ comes to, to resurrect believers, those who have already died in the Lord, it says he will bring with him and we'll be together forever with the Lord. And he says, comfort each other with these words. And so that togetherness forever, knowing those we love are now in glory and knowing that we'll be reunited with them and enjoy eternity with them because of grace, because of God's grace. So, so it helps us to orient our thoughts, orient our hearts toward this future. And then I find this one very, just, just beautiful as well, this thought. Grace tags you as Jesus' own treasure. I haven't seen as many antique shops around here as uh, where we used to live down in North and South Carolina. Uh, but sometimes Faith and I would drive up into the mountains of North Carolina, and there are all these antique shops. And I don't know if we ever bought an antique in our life, but we like to look at them. There's just something about seeing these old pieces of furniture and dishes and you know tools and that, that musty smell that comes with, with that oldness. And uh, I think maybe like, like you did recently, Sean, I find myself in the book section, <laughs> right, the, the used books. And I have found some, some real treasures in the, the book section sometimes in, in antique shops. But every now and then you'll see a beautiful piece of furniture. You think, wow, I wonder what that costs. It's probably thousands of dollars. And, and you see a tag hanging off of that piece of furniture and you walk up and just out of curiosity turn the tag and you see that the tag says, not for sale. And it's probably because the owner said, you know what? I'm going to put this on display, but I'm not going to part with this one. I'm saving this one for myself. And I think that's the idea that we find here in, in verse 14 of the text. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify. And, and look at the wording here. For himself, his own special people, zealous for good works. I think in a similar way as tagging a piece of furniture not for sale, we would say Jesus has purchased you. He redeemed you. He paid a price for you with his own life. And we were living a self-willed life, lawless, self-determining, self-willed, not doing what God wants. We were defiled. We were rotten. We were corrupt. But He has purified us. He has restored us. And He has done it for Himself. And the idea of special possession here is something that is treasured. As one source says, this signifies a costly possession. A choice treasure. So Jesus has made you his own treasured possession. That means that you belong to him. You belong to him. You are his. But it also means that he has a high level of interest in you. That he protects you. That he has reserved you for himself. And that he treasures you. 
It makes me think of what Paul said when he was confronting people who were being tempted by sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he said, you're not your own. You can't do whatever you want with your body. You're not your own. He said in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. So that body that you and I have, this body you and I have, Christ has purchased us, body and soul, for now and forever, with his own blood. We belong to him. And so we need to live for him. He bought us. We're not, his, we're not our own. We're his. But also he treasures us. That's grace. That's grace. Zealous for good works. This is how we respond to this amazing grace. The word zealous means passionately committed. Have you ever heard someone described as an avid something? Maybe a a hobby, maybe a pursuit. That person's an avid runner. Some of you are avid beekeepers, right? You're passionate. You pursue this. You invest a lot of time. Well, that's what the word zealous means. It means to be avid. And grace, specifically the fact that God has made us his own special people, makes us avid Christians. Does that describe you? Avid for good works. Avidly, verse 2, sober, respectable, temperate, sound in the faith, loving, avidly patient, avidly respectable in behavior, avidly avoiding slander, avidly avoiding substances that control and intoxicate you, being an avid teacher of good things and and encouraging young women, to be avid lovers of their husbands and of their children, to be avidly discreet and pure and homemakers and good and submissive to their husbands. Young men, that you would be avidly sober-minded and patterns of good works. And and, and as pastors and, and men in spiritual leadership, Avidly showing integrity and and respectability and incorruptibility and preaching and teaching in a way that cannot be condemned. And and as he says, bond servants, or as we made the application last week, employees being avidly obedient to their masters and well-pleasing in all things and not disagreeable and not taking what isn't yours, but avidly showing all fidelity. In other words, being trustworthy. That's what it means, right? We don't just accept these things and try at these things that we become avid pursuers of these things, and anything else that God's Word directs us to do. As Robert Robinson said, there's an interesting story. I won't relate now. As he wrote, O to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. We are debtors to grace, aren't we? Let thy goodness, like a fetter, like a chain, Bind my wandering heart to thee. Once I was at a bank drive through and on the kiosk where the chute is that takes your, whatever you're transacting, whatever transaction you're making into the bank and back, I was sitting there in my car with the window down. All of a sudden on that kiosk I saw a little spider drop down by a thread and hang there in front of me. And uh, I philosophized about that spider. And I thought, you know, that spider lives here on this kiosk attached to the bank and spins webs and catches and eats bugs. Every day, 
thousands, probably maybe tens of thousands of dollars pass back and forth within inches or a few feet of where this spider lives. He's not aware of any of it. He lives in a different realm of existence. And I I philosophized and I thought that's kind of like us when we live apart from God's grace. We are just spinning out a meager, tenuous existence, not realizing that we are in a vault of the grace of God. God's grace is for us. It's available. It's accessible. It is, it is riches and treasure beyond our imagination. But we tend to just try to do life on our own, apart from God. And what a mistake that is, right? We are in the realm of grace. In Romans 6, Paul says, you are under grace. So we stand in grace. We are under the realm. We are reigned over by grace. It has saved us. It controls us. It blesses us. We can enjoy the grace of God, but we can also live by the grace of God. Father, we pray that you would seal these thoughts in our hearts and minds and use them in whatever way each of us needs today. We give you all the praise and glory as, uh, as it says in Ephesians, that we would be to the praise of the glory of your grace. I pray that would be true in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.